What's up, everybody? This is Word of a Rebel, and as we know from episode one, this series is talking all about the labels that were used to um, label people, group people, and organize people, uh, and especially as it developed here in the United States. Because, of course, these are some, ter- some of these terms are starting to be used in other spaces, but we really want to break down the history of them, where they came from, and why they were used. Because I think, I feel personally, that the labeling system um, is starting to just be kind of like um, accepted as a universal norm, as if this is just like the best way, as if this labeling system always existed and that our ancestors, um, you know, existed within that and it's just always been the way that things have been. And I'm not saying that we have to change the labels necessarily. I just feel like we really need to understand where they came from and their purpose and understand why these labels and these terms were um, were first created and used. I'm a language teacher by profession in addition to being a real estate agent, but as a language teacher and, and, and you know, I guess you could say borderline linguist at this point, um, I feel like language is very important. Words are very important. They carry meaning, they carry labels, they carry history. If you've ever studied vocabulary, there's uh, a way of studying the history of a word called etymology. If you've never actually looked into that before, it's really, really interesting how you can trace the history of people through the etymology of words. The etymology is the history of how a word has been used. And it's, it's really interesting to see the transformation of words with time. And so in episode one, we spoke about the etymology of the terms Africa and Europe, and also how that uh, transformed into what the United States um, now uses as black and white, and what that actually looked like and what it actually meant and how it was applied historically and currently. Now, this episode today is going to look at some of the other groups that have come into the United States and what their particular labeling system Uh, how they changed the labeling system, what labels were applied to them, and why. And also give a little background on um, their origins um, historically as well. So one of the major takeaways that you have from episode one, and I think every every episode in this series, is going to be that the names of the continents were not the names that our ancestors used. The, The names of the continents as we know them today were completely European created. Everything from North America, South America... Africa, Europe, Asia, all of these names were created by Europeans. This is not the names that the ancestors gave to these various lands. And being someone who lives in New Orleans, I can tell you as an example of that, the indigenous name for the region where New Orleans now exists today was Bulbancha. And people will say, you know, Bulbancha is still, um, should be the name of this place. But of course, in modern usage, this place is called New Orleans because a European decided to come here, take this land, oppress the people who lived here, take control of their resources, and then decided to rename this space. So the same thing has occurred, as we know, globally speaking. Now, personally, like it kind of you know upsets me because on the one hand, when you think about something like... Um, saying Africa. Africa is such a beautiful place. And now, and now today, the word Africa has this beautiful, powerful, positive, identifying, um, you know, usage uh, within all people of African descent. It has this beautiful, positive aspect to it. Um, but what pisses me off is the fact that this was a name that was given to the continent by Europeans. And that in doing so, these labels... Um, have been applied to group and separate people. 
because the Europeans were trying to create a system in which they could, could control people. And so I have a lot more to say on that, but I want to take that note about controlling people and bring it forward into the discussion about how did the term Hispanic come into being? In addition to looking at the term Hispanic, we're also in this episode going to look at more group-specific um, labelings that have been used in the United States specifically, such as um, Asian, Arabic, um, indigenous, and other specific um, ways of, of discussing heritage in the United States. So, but let's go ahead and go and deeper into the etymology of um, the term Hispanic. So, once again, etymology is the history of a term. You can do this for any word in any language. You can trace the roots of that word and its uses. Typically, etymology is based on um, written textbooks because, of course, obviously, you know, we have no time machine. We cannot go back in time and see how the word was spoken, but we can trace how it was used in written form. So the term Hispanic, when it was originally used, was actually Hispanicus, and it was used in, in well, the the visual, the actual representation that we can see physically in written form uh, can be traced to the late 1500s and the term Hispanicus was actually talking about the region around Spain and that was how that term was used. It wasn't actually used to talk about the people, it was used to talk about the region itself. Now fast forward until um, the late 1800s, the term Hispanic was used to describe the region of the world of Spanish speakers in the Americas. It still was not applied broadly to discuss the heritage of the people because the people of the Central, Central and South America did not actually use the term Hispanic to talk about themselves. Typically, there were labeling systems in the Spanish-speaking world of the Americas that were used um, for census taking and also for economic control of the region and every country was somewhat different. Mexico, for example, actually had 16 different categories that could be used to describe a person's heritage based on um, various combinations of European, indigenous, and African ancestry. And so depending on what your family background was, was where you fell into the 16 categories. There's also historical examples, documented historic examples, of people who decided to change their labeling if they moved to a city where people didn't really know them. That, ha that was a very, very common practice. Um, and you can actually look up stories of that where a person may have been one of the 16 labels, then they relocated and decided to change their labeling, and then it was documented on census records that change in, in particular. Once again, what that shows us is that the term Hispanic was not actually in use as a term for heritage anywhere in the world. Now, when did it become a thing? It only became a heritage labeling in 1972 and forward to the present day on American census forms and as well as um, forms similar to what white and black terminology or African-American and Caucasian terminology was used on work forms, school entry forms, and things of that nature. Typically, the Hispanic labeling is attached to white or black or African-American or Caucasian, um, so it's not like its own solo labeling, it's an ethnic marker. So within the Hispanic community, a person could say that they are Caucasian Hispanic or white Hispanic, or they could say that they're African-American Hispanic or black Hispanic. So it's kind of strange to me in that way because number one, this label has no meaning for people from these various regions. This is something that has been forced upon a people um, who don't typically choose to identify in this way. They have their own cultural labeling system that they typically apply. Now, interestingly, 
um, a new term was created by the people themselves, which is why you hear people often talk about being of Latin descent, being Latino, Latina, or Latinx. The term Latin is kind of like a way of subverting um, the American created term Hispanic, which most people of the region reject or just aren't really comfortable with. Some people are okay with it, but some people aren't because of what it implies, especially more recent immigrants are not really comfortable using it because it's not something that had any meaning for them prior to moving here. Now, another thing to be aware of is that the term, uh, the terms related to Latin heritage also extend to places in the, the Caribbean, in particular Spanish-speaking um, Caribbean areas. Um, Latin can also be applied um, frequently to people of Brazilian descent. Now, Brazil is an interesting topic of discussion within this labeling system because in the United States, typically you apply the term that your family has chosen, that the family as a unit decides to, de to define within a certain label, right? So if you are born into a black family, you're typically going to say, I am black. So, but that doesn't happen in Brazil. The Brazil labeling system is actually based on the person's skin color. Now that's what's different about it because in the United States, you know, um, it's based on your, your familial history. So, of course, you know, as we know, most people know this historically in the United States. I want to say it was like 116th or 132 African ancestry meant that you were black. I forget the exact specific one. That's not what works in, um, in Brazil. It's based on your skin tone. And so I think, I want to say there's like seven different labels. And people within the same family can actually identify as different, um, different labels within that. Also, there's no forced usage of the, of the labeling system. A person can choose their own personal identity within the labeling system based on their own perspective. Of course, as we know, there is a difference between um, your personal identity and the identity as a society treats you. So a person may identify in Brazil as one thing, but is the society at large treating them as that thing. As we know in the United States, this is also a reality. If a person identifies as being black, but they don't appear black to a lot of people, maybe especially like light-skinned people or like uh, mixed people are often asked, what are you in the United States? Because people can't identify what they are simply by looking at them. And so in that situation, you have people who are getting mislabeled. This happens on census forms as well as just, you know, I, even to the extent of like on, um, on licenses and things like that. If the person doesn't ask you, they're just going to make a guess and just run with it. Um, so this happens a lot to people of various descents because if the person doesn't ask you, they're just going to assign you something based on what they look at, what they look at you as, right? Um, this happens very frequently to people of so-called Hispanic descent, uh, mixed descent, um, being light skin, um, black, you can get mislabeled very, very easily. And this has happened to me. I, if the person doesn't ask me what I am, they just be putting anything, just whatever they feel on that day. I don't understand. If you look historically speaking, this kind of gets comical in a way, because if you look at, for example, census forms, um, if the census taker just makes the guess. For example, if the person doesn't speak English and the census taker does not speak that person's language, they'll just put something on the paper. And so what you find is historically, um, for example, there's many examples like in North Carolina of a person um, 
moving into various categories of being, you know, black, being mixed, being white, depending on what the census taker decided. And in those situations, a lot of the time the person spoke the same language as the individual they were labeling, but there's lots of error in, in, in within the labeling system. So within that, you know, we have to ask the question, um, should the person self-identify or should the culture identify? Okay. And then thinking more specifically, when should the person's identity be of utmost importance and when should the society's identity labeling be of utmost importance? Uh, when we talk about it, we call this ascribed identity. The ascribed identity is the identity that outsiders give to the person. The ascribed identity is the one that most often impacts you when you move about the community. It impacts you in terms of who accepts you as being a part of their group, um, who only accepts you after speaking to you and determining what group labeling you assign to yourself, right? That's what it determines. It also can determine a lot of the time safety issues, as we all know. You know, unfortunately, um, in the United States, it is far more likely that a person who is assumed to be black is going to um, be treated with much more aggression and a lot less fairness by the criminal justice system. This extends to the extent of being killed. And we have to be honest about that. If a person, for example, let's say that there's a person from Brazil and that person in Brazil is assigned a particular label according to the Brazil structure based on the level of melanin, right? But when that person moves here, the ascribed identity based on what people's view of them is, is that they're black. Now, this person has never culturally existed within the United States, and so they're unaware of what that means and how they could be treated. So the person has to learn and adapt. What if that person runs into a police officer who is functioning on racism. And they're going to say, oh no, I don't do that. Yes, you do. Because y'all do, y'all do treat people that you assume to be black differently from how you treat someone white. This, this just goes across the board. Let's look at, for example, there was an example of a man named Leroy Browning um, who was shot and killed by police in 2015. This man had fallen asleep in a drive-thru because he had been drinking. And he was driving to this particular um, drive through location to get food, and he fell asleep. Um, the vehicle started to slowly inch forward because, of course, his foot wasn't staying on the brake the entire time. So the people in the Taco Bell um, called police to come and attend to him. And one thing that I want to impress upon people is I think we need to stop calling the police for things like this. The police are not the smartest people in the world. Bottom line, they can say what the hell they want. I support police that do their job right, but on the whole, we have to recognize that there is a policing problem because what ended up happening is the police did not treat him the way they would have treated a white man. If this had been a white man, they would have simply woken him up, assisted him in parking his vehicle because he's in a parking lot. He was not on a street. See, there is a difference between how police are supposed to treat a situation in a parking lot and how they're supposed to treat a situation on the street. And I'm speaking from personal experience because a man ran into my vehicle in a parking lot. The police officer refused to even give this person a breathalyzer. He refused to even demand any type of intrusion. Okay? Which is fine. 
if the person hadn't ran into my vehicle and caused damage to property, I would get it. But that's not the situation. So the person should have been given a test to see if they had any blood alcohol. Well, in, in this particular situation with Leroy Browning, instead of them treating him like he was a white man, right? Which is how they should treat everybody fairly across the board, just treat everybody the same. No, they didn't. They insisted that even though he was in a parking lot, that he should um, be assumed to be driving while intoxicated, that he should be given a citation, that he should be arrested. That's not really a thing, guys. And what ended up happening is Leroy Browning is now dead because he was policed as they typically police a black man. So what ended up happening is they started to, um, you know, arrest him and the situation escalated very, very quickly. Leroy Browning was definitely intoxicated, not functioning properly. He might not have even been aware of what was happening to him. And so he started to fight, trying to get away. And they killed him. People can say what they want. They can say, well, he should not have tried to fight to free himself. You know what? Maybe that's true. But the problem did not start there. The problem started as soon as the officers did not follow the actual law which states that if a person is operating a vehicle on private property, you are not supposed to treat them like they're operating the vehicle on a public street. The police do not have jurisdiction of private property. This is where the police initially started making their mistake. And we all know that if that was a white man, they would have policed him differently in most situations. And Leroy Browning would still be alive today. Now, going back to the young man, let's say from Brazil, who does not realize how American police officers treat those that they consider black. If he's in the same situation or a different situation, he's going to react in a way that he thinks, according to his culture, he's probably going to be treated. If he was in Brazil, he would have expected a certain thing. This happens very often because I teach international students where international students typically um, in a police situation the person in the vehicle, when they're pulled over, is expected to get out of the vehicle and walk to the back of the vehicle where the officer can see them. Now, one of my students in particular started to do that, and a gun was drawn on him, and he didn't understand why. Policing in the United States really needs to be addressed. It's not done in a smart manner, because this, this student of mine um, thought that he was doing the right thing because police in his country prefer to see the person outside of the vehicle to make a determination about whether or not this person is likely to attack them. In his country, police don't want you to be in the vehicle because if they approach the vehicle, they don't know what they're walking up to. Kind of makes sense when you think about it. A lot of these officers that end up opening fire on people is because they're walking up to a vehicle and they don't know what's about to happen in that vehicle. So it just makes sense. You need to change your policing. Now, going back to the labeling system, I know it feels like I went off on a tangent, but this is all related. This is where the labeling system and all these assumptions have gotten uh, American society as a whole because these labeling systems are in place and they do have meaning and people such as police and hospitals and educators are reacting to these labels and then whenever we say hey maybe the way you're reacting is not fair 
Maybe the way you're reacting is hurting people and hurting their lives. As we know, we have to acknowledge the way the labeling system is used on a day-to-day basis and how it's impacting lives. Because there's, there's different ways that labeling systems are used, right? So for example, if you have an identity such as either Hispanic or black or white, you know, if you're considering that identity in the way that you react to people in your family and in your friendship groups, it's a unifying label, right? But then if that label is used in how you treat other people who have a different label from you and you're mistreating these people, then it becomes a problem. Whenever these labels are used in healthcare and policing and education, it's used in a way that oppresses. Because when it comes to healthcare, policing, and education, these labels should not be the guideline for how you act with people. And that is the problem. Going back to the labeling system, though, let's talk about some of these other labels. So as I mentioned, aside from Hispanic, there are other labels in addition to white and black that are used uh, commonly in the United States. So we have Asian, we have Arabic, indigenous, things like Inuit, things like Pacific Islander. A lot of these are a lot more specific. And so now I want to talk about when and why people use these more specific regional labels. So another group that is not afforded the opportunity to typically um, identify with a specific region or nationality is the Asian community. And there is a, I want to look at the differences between those groups which are broadly identified um, according to most government forms um, and also identity in the community. Um, there, some groups are given the broad terms and some groups are given the more specific terms. And I want to talk about why. And I also want to talk about the difference between the government and like official formal forms that are out there, as well as the more general like in the public um, discussion and in the, in the cultural interactions. So another group that is given a broad term is of course the Asian community. And what's also kind of weird about the labeling of Asian is that it's typically assumed that it's only going to be people from Southeast Asia. And so you're talking about people like from China, from Japan, from Korea, from Vietnam. People in, in these particular countries are typically given the label Asian. Now, if you ask them what their heritage is, a lot of the time they will say their actual the actual nationality of their ancestors, right? So that they'll say something like, well, I have Vietnamese ancestry or Chinese ancestry. But when it comes to filling out government forms, education, stuff like that, and on their licenses, they're typically going to say Asian American, even though that's not how they would typically identify in conversation or within their family group. Now, when it comes to other groups, there's a lot more specific identifiers that are applied. So I'm thinking about people, such as like the Inuit, uh, Pacific Islanders, um, Indigenous American. These particular groups are given specific identifiers because these people politically advocated to get those more specific identifiers applied. So these are groups who are able to identify the same way on government documents as they typically do within their family or you know specific cultural community. Um, but there is another group that is currently starting to um, advocate for 
um, recognition on formal forms in the same way that they culturally identify, which is the Arabic uh, community, typically those centering around like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Palestine, um, Afghanistan, Iraq. These particular groups want to identify as being Arabic. And Arabic, of course, is an interesting term because it quantifies a culture as well as a language. Interestingly, a lot of Americans call this group Muslim. And the reason that's in error is because there are other religions in that era, in that area. So saying um, this is a Muslim person simply because they have the appearance of looking Arabic, Arabic features, whatever you may consider it, um, you're pro you know, it's wrong to say Muslim. On top of the fact that there are Muslim people in many, many, many different parts of the world who don't look like people in the Arabic region. So it's a misnomer to call people in this region Muslim. You can call these people Arabic, uh, and for the most part, most people in the region will be okay with that. Now, when it comes to family groups, they don't actually identify um, as Arabic. They typically identify more likely with their nationality. So they might say they're Pakistani or Kuwaiti or Saudi. They're not likely to say I'm Arabic, unless they think the person might not realize or understand their nationality. And what's interesting is that a lot of the time within these communities, within these Arabic-speaking nations, a lot of the time they will also tell you that they have more specific names, such as like a, a family group, also known as a clan name. Um, so they also, within their countries, sometimes identify according to their family group. Um, so, But in the United States, typically they'll just say they are Arabic because it's just a term that they have accepted as a group, and it identifies their culture as well as their primary language. So looking at the various groups that are, um, you know, let's look at Asian and Arabic, for example. Asian and Arabic, um, most people within these communities, typically in the United States, identify as those two labels, but then of course within their own direct cultural community, or if you ask them in a personal conversation, what is your heritage, they will probably give their nationality most often. And the reason with that is there's a difference between the black community and the white community and these communities such as the ones that I've just mentioned, Arabic, Asian, also Pacific Islander, Inuit, Indigenous American. There's, the reason there's a difference is because the majority of people within this community, they know the specific origin of the majority of their ancestry. Black and white as terminology has become, um, has evolved in response to uh, the experience of people who have been in the United States for many generations. And so if you say, if someone says that they are black and someone else says that they are white, the understanding is that their heritage does not trace back to one specific location in either Africa or Europe. Instead, they understand that there is a combination of ancestries that have culminated in their particular genetic makeup. And that's really the reason why you have people who've been here generationally speaking will identify as black and white, whereas someone who is a more recent immigrant, and this includes people who recently immigrated from Africa um, and South America, typically identify with their specific group, their nationality or their family group or their regional group. That's where the disconnect occurs. So when someone from another country doesn't choose to identify according to black, white, Hispanic, and Asian, that's where that's coming from. It's because of a respect and a knowing of one's direct ancestry. And so you wanna pay tribute to that. So we have to be, I know that labeling can be a very sensitive topic, but we have to be honoring and respecting a person's personal choice to identify with their specific 
group, no one should be forced to identify in a broad term. Now, also, when a person says that they identify with a more specific term, it does not discount their recognition about their connection or their similarity to a broader group. So if someone says that they identify as being um, Pakistani, it does not mean that they separate themselves from the larger Arabic community and the larger Arabic experience as is understood in the United States. Similarly, a person who identifies as being Senegalese or Nigerian does not separate themselves from understanding that they have a similar experience as most black Americans. It doesn't separate from that, it doesn't denounce that, it doesn't disrespect that. It's simply saying that I identify with my direct ancestry, but I do know that I'm treated in a similar fashion to a larger group. Before we move on to the next point of topic, I want to kind of recap what we've actually covered today. Uh, well, in general, in episode one and episode two, because this is episode two. Um, so basically, we're, we're looking at, uh, we looked at the origins of African and European, how those two transformed into being um, black and white in the United States. We looked at how other labeling systems around the world exist, have existed, and do exist today. We also looked at how there are more regional specific labelings compared to the larger, broader um, group labelings and how those can sometimes be, you know, con conflicted um, in the minds of outsiders who don't understand why a person identifies the way that they do. Um, but also looking on, on the political front, how these things are causing direct impact on people's lives uh, when it comes to policing, healthcare and education in particular. Um, as it pertains to interpersonal, you know, connection, there, you know, you have your right to socialize with whomever you want. But when it comes to the public front and the public services, these, this is the area that needs to be addressed as far as these labelings are concerned and the way that these labelings are, there, there's stereotypes, there's internal bias that people have that they react to without, without really being aware of these biases. Um, and you can take an innate bias test, it's called the IAT, to kind of test yourself and see, you know, what kind of internal biases you have. And these really need to be addressed because, and also people need to be aware on a personal basis. Until this is properly fixed on the public front, on a personal basis, you need to advocate for yourself. You need to ask yourself, am I being treated the same way as someone else of a different identity? Am I being given the fair treatment that I deserve as a human in this world? You have to ask yourself that and you need to advocate also for other people. I really feel like I don't think any of us should ever go into a situation, whether it be policing, healthcare, or education alone. If you are personally connected and emotional in the situation, you should have an advocate with you who's going to speak up for you. Because a lot of the time, especially in healthcare, we're in an emotional state. And so we might accept the decisions of the nurse and the doctor without really thinking about how to advocate for ourselves. So it's really helpful to have a support system. And so I strongly suggest and advise people, we shouldn't have to do this, but the reality is you need to protect yourself. Bring somebody with you who's going to advocate for you. In the next episode, we're going to dive into some other terminologies that have evolved with time. We're going to look specifically at the terms minority, majority, and people of color, and white people. We're going to look at those four labels, what they mean, how they've been misused, 
how they've been properly used, and how to better understand the differences in each one. So once again, this has been Word of a Rebel. If you have any comments or questions regarding the history of these various labels that have been discussed thus far, please hit me up, send me a comment or a message at Word of a Rebel on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. I'll be happy to discuss it more with you. Uh, also diving in more deeply because there's so much more to this story than just what I've talked about. I've, I've tried to give just a summary, kind of a history of the labels. I haven't really talked intently about how they're used. Um, I briefly discussed the, you know, the policing and the healthcare and the education, but I really want to go more deeply into those as well. So if you have specific questions or situations that you want me to talk about, maybe you have examples about real lived experiences according to these labels, hit me up, let me know about them. I want to share your personal stories because they give better examples to illustrate what, you know, each community has experienced in regard to living in this world that is so committed to labels. Once again, everybody, this has been Word of a Rebel. I look forward to communicating with all of you and to growing in knowledge and experiences together. Peace.